Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast.、Uh, today we are going to resume our OPM Golden Triangle series,、uh, and to help me, I have our returning guest, Mr. David Emilia, all the way from. Mangsi, Yunnan.、Uh, welcome back to the show, Davide. Yo,、um, yeah, good to、um, be back. I mean, we talked yesterday,、um, but then we didn't end up、um, getting on to Laos yesterday. We were talking about Myanmar and here in Southwest Yunnan and this and that and the other things. So we we did talk about Laos a little bit, but only. As far as the、uh, high-speed rail across the border from China, from Yunnan into Laos, and then how that originally wanted to plan maybe like thirty minutes, like twenty minutes tops, to talk about the present before we、uh, take a、yeah. <laughs> take a trip to the past. But we we got a little bit carried away. It never works so... out that way. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're just gonna go. Dive straight in, straight into history. With the recent opening of the China Laos Railway, which we have talked about, now it's time to visit more recent history of the region,、uh, particularly during the time period that we were discussing on, on the OPM、uh, Golden Triangle series, because the Golden Triangle is actually a border region among three countries: China, Myanmar. And Laos, and that that is why that area is called Golden Triangle. And so far, we have been focused on the activity of the KMT Remnant Army in northern Myanmar. Today, I want to switch track a little bit to cover the other side of the Golden Triangle, the Laos side of the story, because th- this is equally important, and it's going to tie into our story later. I, I promise, we're going to wrap up all the threads.、Um, So I,、uh, you know, most of the information is from the excellent book by Alfred McCoy called "The Politics of Heroin,"、uh, which originally was published in the 1970s during the Vietnam War.、Uh, it has been republished several times, and I think the latest edition is called "Politics of Heroin:"、uh, the, the, the the heroin in the global politics. And he laid out kind of the the historical background、um, of the opium and heroin trade, particularly in Southeast Asia. We cover a lot on the Myanmar side, and、uh, now we're going to talk about the, the Lao side, the the eastern part of the Golden Triangle. And this has to do again with、uh, the European colonization of the region. Uh, because uh, you know, opium, as we have introduced、uh, topics, opium has been well well known in East Asia for thousands of years, but as medicine, and but when the British,、uh, you know, introduced it as a recreational drug and flood the market with mass-produced Indian opium, which they had a monopoly on,、uh, that drove. Millions of people、uh, in China to become opium addicts, if not tens of millions of people, and that opium habits also start to spread throughout the region because you know Southeast Asia for thousands of years have been、uh, 
very intimately linked with by trade with southern China. When Guangzhou become like the ground zero of British opium trade, some of that opium gets leaked in uh, through through trade to places like South Vietnam, where you know there's there has been a long established uh, a Chinese diaspora community over there. Um, initially, the Vietnamese emperor under the Vietnam's last Nguyen dynasty also tried to um, impose an opium ban, much like the you know what the the Chinese emperors have done in Qin dynasty. But they weren't very successful, and and very soon French would put the, put a stop to the ban altogether when France just took over the southern half of the country. Uh, using their gunboats, and then, and within six months, uh, France put together an opium monopoly over the region, which in, which um, enabled them to finance their colony and, and actually made their colony profitable. Uh, you know, it's it, at that time, uh, you know, it was a very simple opium tax. Uh, so the opium are imported from the British India. And the French authority will levy a ten percent tax on the opium, and uh, before let it be distributed by the, the the Chinese dealers in the in in like the Saigon Cholong area to the to the addicts over there, and and it, it became so profitable. Uh, you know the 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 French coach in China, which is the, the, the southern Vietnam that France first occupied. Uh, you know, became self-sustainable in within six months on the opium revenue. At the same time, the 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 the, the Vietnam government, which still hold up in the north central part of the country, they had to pay a huge indemnity to France for the honor of being invaded, and to finance that that uh, large amount of silver they have to pay from France, they they turn to the only uh, you know quick source of cash, which is the tax on op basically forced to legalize opium trade, um, uh, put in together their own opium monopoly, and uh, you know decades later France also took over central and northern Vietnam, and and the Fran French, uh, in trying to um make their colonies sustainable because fr France actually spent a lot of trash. This Go is ahead. part of what was called French Indochina, uh, correct? Yes. Yes, yeah. and as part of the French conquest to take over South, Central, and North Vietnam, you know, French have to uh, finance a lot of their armies, and and it was it was very expensive. So France wanted to make their colonies self sustainable. So so they they start to you know pondering what you know how they're going to squeeze money out of their colonial enterprise. And and they learn from their experience in southern Vietnam, where the opium monopoly was hugely profitable. So so they quickly consolidate the opium uh, mon uh, monopoly within all the French Indochina colonies. Uh, they 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 streamline the bureaucracy, and they even put in a opium refinery in Saigon. So when they had the when had the the Indian opium arrive. It goes into this factory where they uh, they uh, work out a method to mix the opium into a product that will burn very quickly. So 
so it encouraged the addict to smoke even more opium. Yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit like um, low tech crack. <laughs> yes, yes. And through this way, uh, at one point, the French uh, Indochina colonial government derived one third of its revenue from the opium tax. Uh, you know, they have a have a monopoly on all the opium trade, and they 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 take a ten percent cut. And and in fact, uh, when the when when you know we talk about railroads, when French was building their railroads from from Vietnam into Yunnan, one of the specific reason uh, rationale for building that railroad is to get access to the Yunnan opium. Uh, the reason for that is because the Indian opium, because it's imported from so far away from British India, is still quite expensive. Uh, but the Fr- Fr- the French want to expand uh, their opium revenue to cover all the poorly paid labor, common labors who also o- rely on opium to dull their pain, um, and who who may otherwisely not be able to afford the imported British opium. So so um, so they the French allowed the the Yunnanese opium to come in to flood into North Vietnam to supply the lower end of the market. Uh, because as we, we have talked about after the Second Opium War, uh, British, uh, British and French, they forced the Qing government to officially legalize opium trade yeah. and as a response. As a response, the Qing official decided to legalize the cultivation of opium as well. So, so very soon, within a couple of decades, by the end of 19th century, China, uh, the opium production in China will actually overtake the the Indian production and start to supply most of the needs of the Chinese opium addict. And then there's enough, more than enough for export. And and especially in the case of Yunnan, because Yunnan is just very isolated in this very mountainous part of southwestern China. Um, a lot of the, I, there's something I might not have mentioned explicitly before. Um, a lot of the population centers in Yunnan are based in um, mountain valleys, right? So... Yes, you've got you've got these basins um, in in the distant past. A lot of them were vast inland seas, but now uh, there's subterranean water, and then you've got like these basins, which are basically agricultural production areas. I mean, quite a few people lived in the mountains and hills as well, but the the population centers were all in these uh, mountain valleys, like here, for example. Um, and this is this is where you can do mass scale agriculture. So this is where you can grow a shit ton of. Um, this is where you can grow a shit ton of um, rice. Rice, exactly. And that if you have mass rice uh, agriculture, that's where you can get real population centers. Um, and that's that's you know that's like you know that's that's the basis of say an empire or a principality or a kingdom like uh, mountain villages you know they can they can do subsistence agriculture but they can't mass plant rice or whatever and so they uh, don't have enough surplus to, to trade with other communities yeah exactly like um, yeah and so if they're if when when trade opens up for these kind of places they go well we could grow just enough rice to feed ourselves or we could grow opium 
and we could, you know, like you could make a lot more money and then you can just use the money or the opium and just trade it. Um, yep. But another thing about that is if you're living in these, these mountainous areas or these valleys, these hilled valleys, mountain valleys, um, it's really hard for people to come in and 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 force you to do something okay so the local power if if people like you know the french or the ching or whoever want to force the people in these areas to do something they have to go through the local authority or the local power base so that's why um you know you, you had these proxy systems where most of the actual uh, governance and authority on the ground was undertaken by these uh, regional powers, you know, like the the Dai Salpa or whoever else. And then, yeah, the, um, the, the feudal system is is maintained and and it's even strengthened. Yeah, the way the way that people force them to play ball is by saying, "Look, you know, you've got your little um, your little kingdom or your little principality up there in the valley or up there in the mountain, but if you don't play ball, we you're not going to be able to trade with anyone else outside of your local area." You know, so they they go, "Okay, if you play ball, if you play tribute to us, um, we will allow you to trade with um, everyone else who's part of our system. And in return, that will suit you as well because then you don't have to worry so much about growing your own food. You can just grow opium or, or some other cash crop and then you can yeah. trade that or you can, you can, you can get money. You, you become part of a larger economic system by playing ball with us, basically. Yeah. Yeah, opium became a cash crop. I mean, whereas before it might just be uh, grow on a very limited scale for local consumption. Now, now it can be you know packed on mule train and and traded down the river as far as Vietnam uh, and and Thailand, and then you are now a part of the international system. And, yeah, and and this and the same thing goes on until today as well. That like um, yep. in places yep. like Myanmar and elsewhere. Yep. So the, the you know the the, the French um, at the time they even specifically said, well, you know, their goal of building the Yunnan uh, Vietnam Railway is that um, it is particularly interesting. At the moment, one is about to vote funds for the construction of a railway to Yunnan to search for ways to um, augment the commerce between the province and our territory. The regulation of commerce in opium and salt in Yunnan might be adjusted in such a way as to facilitate commerce and increase the tonnage carry on our railway. So the whole point of building the, the China-Vietnam railway for the French was to for their access for the cheap uh, Yunnan opium. And... Um, and this is uh, this is but 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 you, the, the 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 one uh, one reason is also uh, you know I uh, we talk about this in China the largest opium growing region number one is Sichuan yeah. number two is Yunnan 
yeah. the, the OPM in Sichuan can be harvested and load on boats and sail down the Yangtze yeah, exactly. and to yeah. send to the rest part of China. But Yunnan is landlocked and it's very mountainous. And like the, the Yangtze River uh, part of Yunnan is not really navigable. So f- for Yunnan, it's actually easy. It's, a, it's traditional trade linkage is t- with the South the rest of Southeast Asia via like the Red, whether the Red River or Mekong or Salween River, you know, through these valleys. And and so what ended up happening is even though Yunnan had the second highest production of opium in China, mostly these, the surplus opium in Yunnan got exported to Southeast Asia. Um, it got it exported, to, uh, some of them get smuggled into uh, into Myanmar, because whereas you know where where British was also artificially keeping the the opium price high to uh, you know for because they wanted people to buy the imported Indian opium, and some of them get uh, smuggled through Laos to Thailand because uh, you know the Thai um, Thailand also had a opium monopoly at the time because they they. Um, the, the the Thai ro- royals also strapped for money, so they they quickly learned. Uh, they were forced to also to allow you know opium trade by the British, <laughs> and then they they decided, okay, we're gonna put our o- opium monopoly our our own, so we can act, at least tax it. Um, but then uh, the, the 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 British again br- imported British opium is expensive. Whereas the smuggled the uh, Yunnanese opium is cheap, so so there's always all these Yunnanese opium production that gets smuggled into Myanmar, to Thailand, to French Indochina, and, and that's uh, and that's that, why China, in large part, became after the opium trade had been forced on China. That's why opium and heroin became so synonymous with China even well into the 20th century where they were referring to China white. Um, that yes. you know, Chinese opium and heroin, as, or Chinese opium really, as a global co- commodity really started then as, as a result of the British forcing the trade onto the Chinese after yeah. the emperor had said, look, we don't want a bar of this. It's ruining our people. Um, yeah. But then, as you say, like after that point, uh, the leadership in China, like the, the 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 imperial leadership, and then all the local leadership, have basically said, "Well, if we're being forced to do this business, we're going to benefit from it as much as possible." And but of course, late era Qing dynasty is like really, really corrupted. So. Um, again, yeah. a similar situation to Myanmar today, where you've got a handful of like government people and generals getting rich as kings, and everyone else just like in the worst poverty imaginable. Um, yeah, well, I mean, because back then the the, the 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 European colonial government they didn't really care about welfare of the local people. Oh, they they came no. they came to the colony to to explicitly make money off the backs of their, yeah. their subjugated population. Absolutely. And, and then, in, but then um, during the World War II, uh, so the French Indochina had a mini opium crisis because before their uh, opium was mostly imported from abroad, aside from the Yunnanese supply, uh, they, they, they import from initially British in, uh, 
India, and later they get imported from、uh, places like Iran and Turkey. Yeah, Turkey. Turkey was massive in like yeah early twentieth century opium production. Yeah, and、uh, in fact, that's where the Americans would get their opium to sell into China. So during the before the Opium War, the British had cornered about ninety percent of the Chinese opium market, and the Americans have about ten percent of the opium market. Where you know the Americans they would just sell to the Ottoman Empire. Load up on the Turkish opium and and, and smuggle into Guangzhou、um, under the with the cooperation of the the richest man in China,、um, yeah, Hou Kua,、uh, Hou Kua, and and like this was、uh, I think it was during during one of the famines in Guangzhou. So so Hou Kua arranged it. So it, it appears as Americans are. Shipping in rice, but underneath the rice, they were they were shipping opium. That's、um, that's a nice thing about opium. Even if you're doing like industrial quantities by volume, it's a much lower volume product than say、yeah. rice. You can't、yes. really compress a sack of rice down into a smaller volume,、yep. but with opium, you can just press it until it. Takes up almost no space, even though it's like worth hundreds、yeah. of thousands or even more. So at the beginning of the World War II,、uh, French Indochina had twenty-five thousand opium dens,、uh, uh, sustaining about hundred thousand addicts and providing fifteen percent of the colonial government revenue tax revenue. And but but then the opium imp the Or opium importation from Iran and Turkey got interrupted because of war, because there's blockades, there's naval battles, and and then、um, following that, there's also the、uh, the Japanese takeover. But Japanese takeover of Indo- French Indochina initially was、uh, a relatively peaceful affair because. Uh, on the ground, the Japanese actually left the, all the French colonial official in place to run their、um, run their day to day affairs.、Uh, but you know the the, the problem was, is that they just don't have the opium supply, so they had to、uh, seek alternative resource. So while the smuggled in Yunnanese opium、uh, sort of you know meet the meet the meet the needs, but the 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 French Colonial government want a way to control it and tax it because a lot of Yunnanese opium are coming in by smugglers. That you know they're not able to get money from it. So they to to solve that problem, they start to encourage、uh, the hills tribes to grow opium in Laos and northwest Vietnam. And this,、um, you know, particularly by the Miao and Yao tribesmen. And and the 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 Miao people. That ends a preview for the Silk and Steel podcast episode number one sixty one, the Golden Triangle and Opium series part seven. To listen to the rest of the episode and the rest of the series, please subscribe to the Silk and Steel podcast on the Patreon dot com. Just go to Patreon dot com and search Silk. The Silk and Steel podcast will be the first results. I put in a lot of time and effort into this podcast, and I do appreciate your support. I hope you enjoy listening, and I hope you subscribe. Bye bye.